On this episode, I speak to Dr. Pascal Guiton. She is an assistant professor at California State University and the PI of a group with research interests in the biology of Toxoplasma gondii, which is a protozoan parasite. I'd like to warn you that um, parasite biology is definitely very complex because a single organism has many developmental forms with different names and terminology, but Pascal Guiton explains it all well at the start and also shows us how this complexity brings with it many intriguing research questions um, and opportunities to probe fundamental biological processes. So I'll hope you'll enjoy. Hello and welcome. Um, do you maybe want to start by introducing yourself, telling us a bit about your background? Thank you for having me, Ursul. Uh, my name is uh, Pascal Guiton, and I'm an assistant professor at California State University, East Bay, uh, one of 23 campuses in the CSU system in the U.S. So I teach uh, in the biological sciences department, and I'm happy to be here and talking to you. Great. So I think it would be good for our listeners to maybe set up the background about what Toxoplasma gondii is. Um, what, what the parasite is, what disease it causes, and maybe a bit about its different developmental forms, what that means. Okay, so uh, Toxoplasma gondii is a protozoan, which means that it is a eukaryotic pathogen, single-celled organism. It was first identified um, in 1908 in uh, a rodent called the gundi. So this is how it got the gondii. And it is a bow-shaped parasite. So toxo really means bow-shaped. And then uh, plasma means form, right? So it's a bow-shaped um, form isolated from a gundi. So hence toxoplasma gundii. And so it's, um, it's a, an obligate intracellular parasite, which means that it has to live inside the cell where it develops. And toxoplasma... Uh, once it's inside the cell, it undergo a process called schizogony. So this is how it divides. Essentially, the mother cells um, becomes pregnant, if you will. The daughter cell will develop within the mother and then uh, eat up the mother and then you'll get the two daughter cells. And so the rapidly dividing form of the parasite is called a tachyzoite. So you can think about tachy as fast, like tachycardia, tachometer. And when the tachyzoite divide or in the cell inside this parasitophorous bacterial that the parasite form inside the cell, they will lice out and then they will go on and infect neighboring cells and eventually disseminate throughout the host. But when the immune system kicks in and other stressful stimuli, a lot of it we don't really know, but we know definitely that immune stress will cause the tachyzoite to... Um, to differentiate into another form called the bradyzoite. And brady means slow, the uh, replication rate will slow, and then they will become encyst inside a sugar-rich cyst wall, right? So they form those tissue cysts and they will persist in the brain and in the muscle of the infected individual. And the only way toxoplasma can get out of a host like you or a rodent is if it get eaten by um, by a feline, right? So if you go on a safari and you decide to pet a lion, 
this is probably Toxo wanted to get back into it, um, its definitive host where it can have sex, okay? So the cats are the only, the cat, feline, lion, tigers, and so on, are the only organism or that is known in which Toxo can have its um, sexual cycle. Inside the cat, the parasite can go uh, multiple ways, right? So the bradyzoite inside the cyst, right, that the cat has ingested will come out in the gastrointestinal tract. Mm -hmm. Some of them will differentiate into tachyzoite and go through and establish themselves in the brain. Others will go through the sexual cycle, go through different developmental stages. One of them is the merozoite. And then the merozoite will differentiate into the sex stage, right? And then the female and the the male sex um, cells will fuse together to form a zygote. And the zygote we then get encased into what we call an oocyst wall. Mm-hmm. And then the oocyst now will get shed, billions of oocysts get shed by the infected cat into the environment, okay? And then in the environment, you will have the unsporulated oocysts that basically serve as uh, environmental reservoirs for toxoplasma. And in the environment, the parasite will uh, within the oocyst, the zygote will develop into sporozoite. And then you get sporozoite within that oocyst. So the oocyst becomes sporulated oocyst, which then you have grazers like rodents, um, cows and pigs and so on, will ingest this oocyst. The sporozoite will come out, right? And the whole process, sporozoite comes out, turns into tachyzoite, which turn into bradyzoite, Right. And so, and then we get to eat meat, right, from an animal that is chronically infected with toxoplasma. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, we get toxo again. So just to recapitulate, the life cycle of this organism is complex, very complex from what I just said. But I think what is important for human is that we get infected by ingesting oocyst, right, from the environment on contaminated food and so on, or by eating meat, undercooked meat, that is derived from an animal that is chronically infected with toxoplasma. Does that make sense? So two phases, two stages can contaminate us. Uh, the sporozoite inside oocyst and the bradyzoite inside tissue cyst. Third, the tachyzoite, I told you is the, is the form that disseminates the tachyzoite can also cross the placenta and go on to infect the fetus and cause a lot of damages. So the disease that toxoplasma causes is toxoplasmosis. That's what it is called. And you have multiple forms of toxoplasmosis, okay? So you have, the, when you have a healthy individual becoming infected, right, the, usually you get flu-like symptoms and uh, it is a self-limiting disease, but it will remain in your, in your body, in your brain or in your skeletal muscle for the rest of your life because there's no treatment. But you can also have uh, congenital toxoplasmosis, which is when you have a pregnant mother becoming infected and the, the parasite crosses the placenta and causes, infect the fetus, you can get um, uh, abortion, premature birth, all sort of developmental delays and, and so on. And you have another, part, another kind of toxoplasma, which is ocular toxoplasma. 
and this is very predominant in um, predominant in um, South America, and also um, in in children who were infected as kids. When they become adult, they can start suffering from ocular toxoplasmosis, and of course, you have recurrent toxoplasmosis, which happens when a healthy person who was chronically infected with toxoplasma becomes immunocompromised. So people like uh, patient undergoing uh, chemotherapy, right? Cancer patient, transplant patient, or HIV AIDS patient. Mm -hmm. Then the parasite will reactivate in the brain and then spread all around. So it's, you know, it, it was a pretty big question you asked me and I feel like I've been talking, but it's, uh, it, it is a very successful pathogen um, mm -hmm. just in, in general. Yeah, that's the thing, because even though its cycle seems awfully complex, it's, it's present in most warm-blooded mammals. And I think it's estimated that around one-third of the human population has toxo. Is, is the disease burden still very significant? Yes, so um, it's still a cause of, um, of morbidity in uh, mortality in HIV AIDS patients. Uh, in the United States, for instance, uh, toxoplasma infections are the second leading cause of death due to foodborne illnesses. About 24% of all deaths due to foodborne illnesses are due to toxoplasma infection in the United States, causing uh, billions of dollars every year. And in terms of the prevalence, it is still believed that 30%, about 30% of the world population is infected with toxoplasma. And we're just talking about humans, right? Mm -hmm. But toxoplasma infects virtually all warm-blooded animals. In California here, the sea otter population was almost decimated because of a toxoplasma, because of toxoplasma uh, infections that has just almost wiped, wiped them out. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful that the, 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 in healthy individuals, in most healthy adults, the parasite doesn't cause havoc, but you become, the consequences become more severe. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, also one thing that's very surprising about toxoplasma is all this thing about um, mice and cats. So there's this, this body of evidence that when mice get infected with toxoplasma, they lose their aversion to cats such that um, it's easier for cats to eat, the, to eat the mice. And I think that also led to maybe wide speculation about toxo modifying human behavior on a global scale. Um, can you maybe talk about how solid this evidence is, maybe in mice and in humans? I mean, like what's the basis of this behavioral effect? So, I mean, in mice, it is definitely, I would say the evidence in mice is fairly strong that uh, chronically infected animal do have some neurological um, changes in their behavior, right? And so one of the, the experiment that comes to mind right now is where they had, uh, um, they did like a quadrant type study where on one side of a circle, they had rabbit urine, and on the other side, they had uh, cat, bobcat urine. And then they basically let the mice loose, and they're like, go guys. And so those who were chronically infected with toxoplasma tended to spend more time in the bobcat quadrant, and those who were not 
basically were away from 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 that right and so this to me this this was very strong evidence that there is uh, toxo does manipulate uh, neuronal circuits right to achieve what it needs to achieve and evolutionary it makes sense because like i said the definitive host is the feline and so the purpose of life at least in biology is to pass on your genes and for a species to remain uh, to survive right it needs to have uh, diversity in the in the gene pool right and so to achieve that is essentially the asexual uh, sexual reproduction and so being able to get back into the cat is um is almost like it's a requirement for toxo to, mm. to be able to to persist as a species um in terms of the actual pathways i don't think we know much about it because like for instance you said they lose their version but then uh, i don't I don't really know how far they are now in, in, in this, but it was either, is it attraction or is it loss of fear? Because apparently those neurological pathways are different. In, in humans, uh, there is a bit, I think the evidence is becoming stronger that there's definitely some, um, some changes in the brain that are associated with a chronic infection with toxo. So, a recent review, 2020, um, by the Soldati group, basically looked at neuroinflammation during um, during chronic toxoplasmosis, and it seems like there is a link between the immune system activation of the immune system and uh, this loss of aversion to to the cat. But there's more research that needs to be done on that front. But, you know, in Germany, I, I was reading, there's this one study that says that in Germany, people with um, chronically infected with toxo are more likely to exhibit road rage than those who are not. So, you know. Yeah, it's also like one specific gene, like one SNP is associated with like aberrant behavior or whatever. It's their kind exactly. of... Exactly, yeah. Um, and then maybe to come back, what's special about felines that make the, only them the definitive host? Yeah, that's actually a pretty good question. And we can thank uh, Laura Knoll's uh, lab for that. They, in 2019, they actually figured out one of the main things. So, so all mammalians, as far as we know, have an enzyme called Delta-6 um, desaturase. And it's an enzyme that acts on uh, linolenic acid to produce... Um, subsequent um, lipids, okay? The felines are the only one that we know of that do not have this enzyme. And work done by uh, Laura Noll's lab shows that if you delete this enzyme in mice, then the sexual cycle is able to occur. And so um, what they've done is essentially feeding linolenic acid in tissue culture adding linolenic acid to cell culture and realize that, oh, look, we can recapitulate the, um, we can recapitulate the entire sexual cycle of toxoplasma in vitro, which was a big deal. I mean, I spent some time during my postdoc trying to, to figure out if we can develop an in, an in vitro system to study the sexual cycle. And then all of a sudden it's just a lipid. So it was pretty, pretty cool. 
it's such a neat demonstration because like the fact that they map it to just one enzyme and all the applications. Isn't it cool? I mean, people, I told you, Tuxel was what? We, we knew about it since 1908, right? We knew about the sexual cycle for a long time. And it's only in 2019 that we're able to actually recapitulate the entire thing in vitro. And she does it in a organoid, intestinal organoid, which is really super cool. Great. Uh, then maybe we can move on to your research more specifically. So what are the um, cellular infection models that you use? And what do you do so that you can increase their in vivo relevance? So, so when I was a postdoc, I was interested in uh, the sexual stages of toxoplasma, but specifically what happened after um, sexual replication. So how do the sporozoa initiate infection? And at the time it was, there really wasn't any system to really study the sporozoite in vitro to get the sporozoite, you have to go through the cat and so on. And essentially what I've done is just ask a basic question. Does the sporozoite induce an immune response when it encounters the cells of the gastrointestinal tract? So all I've done essentially is take some right intestinal epithelial cells and expose them to sporozoite and here we are, they do induce some um, sort of some level of inflammatory response, which is linked to um, NF-kappa-B. And so from there, I, I'm at a school that is mainly undergraduate uh, and it's mainly a teaching school. We do do some research, but it's really not like a Stanford or Harvard type research uh, school. And so I couldn't really work with sporozoite because they're highly, highly infectious. Mm -hmm. Instead, I am working with the bradyzoite stage, but the questions remain the same. What are the molecular uh, events that take place at the very, very first interaction of toxoplasma with the host in the gastrointestinal tract? That makes sense? So one of the things that uh, we're looking at is, again, using in vitro cell culture using uh, right intestinal epithelial cells and uh, losing, using this uh, oral murine model of oral toxoplasmosis. So you feed the mice uh, with tissue, the brain from mice, and then you see it. But even that has a limitation, right? Because rodents are not necessarily um, carnivores, right? They're usually herbivores, if you will. One of the other possibility that I'm thinking of is using um, pig intestinal uh, cells because the pig immune system is slightly closer to humans than, than mice, but there's also human intestinal epithelial cells that I'm planning on using for, for this particular studies that we're doing now. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so there's the good news again is that toxo infects so many organisms that it's, it's um, be a model system out there. At least. Exactly. And now with the ability to do, to create organoids, we can definitely find ways to study, to study this, this pathogen and this definitely this understudied area, right? Toxo in the intestinal tract. Okay. So I suppose you look at the transcriptomic response upon infection. Can you maybe, so you mentioned NF-kappa B. Uh, can you maybe say like what are the most significant genes that are upregulated or downregulated, and is that the typical immune response you'd expect from that type of parasite? So 
with toxoplasma, um, so a lot of the study in terms of host response with toxoplasma has been done with the tachyzoite form, right? Because it replicates very fast, it is genetically tractable and so on. And uh, toxo does induce a strong inflammatory response and it's mainly a Th1 response. And one of the major cytokines that is involved in uh, combating, if you will, toxoplasma uh, infection is interferon gamma. So with that interferon gamma, the parasite can replicate ad nauseum, but interferon gamma is present, then there is, um, it basically keeps the parasite at bay. Clearly it doesn't cause the immune system to get rid of it altogether, but it keeps it at bay. And so in terms of immune modulation, it does slightly vary between different strains of the parasite. So you have some, um, um, some polymorphism in different strains of the parasite that will cause certain molecule to reduce a particular inflammatory pathway, immune pathway, but in a different strain, it will cause that pathway to be upregulated, right? And so we know more about that between type one and type two parasite. And so, yeah, no, the typical, the typical immune response to toxoplasma, like I said, it's a type one response with interferon gamma being the major cytokine in, in terms of anti-toxoplasma response from the host. A lot of the um, studies being with tachyzoids, but do you think other developmental forms would induce a different type of response? So with the sporozoite, I can tell you that from our study, which granted it's one study, we know that the sporozoite does induce similar type of response um, than the, as the tachyzoite. And our hypothesis is that this response just get expanded in the tachyzoite form. And the reason is because they can divide very fast. So they produce more antigens and so on, but also they can escape that immune system much faster. Other studies that, that have shown that the bradyzoite also do induce an immune response. Um, how strong the response is may be different, right? Maybe much lower with the other developmental form. In the, in the cat, for instance, with the sexual stages, um, we do know that there's a study by Ramakrishnan where they looked at the toxoplasma, but they were looking at the, they were looking at the parasite genes. So in terms of parasite genes, there's definitely stage-specific expression of toxoplasma genes. But again, the other thing too is when we think about toxo, we have to think about the cell type that the, the parasite infects because the, the response varies from cell to cell since the parasite has different, expresses different genes depending on what cell type it's found in. You may remind us, um, so sporozoites infect just one cell type, whereas tachyzoites have a so, range? So in terms of tropism, when you think about it um, in terms of the biology of the, of the parasite, the sporozoite that is coming out of the, of the oocyst in the gastrointestinal tract will infect enterocyte. Mm -hmm. But you know, among enterocytes, you have several, right? You have intestinal epithelial cells, you have goblet cells and so on, right? So 
we don't necessarily know which type specifically they infect because we really don't know much about toxoplasma in the intestinal tract in terms of at the molecular level because it's difficult to work with sporozoite. But um, I, I won't be surprised if they can infect most cells in the GI tract, most intestinal cells. Um, tachyzoite can definitely infect virtually all nucleated cell uh, in the body. So that one is fairly well established. Okay. And can you tell us how you show causality in, in these environments? Because if you're just looking at transcriptomics, that would be correlation between like an upregulated gene and a particular, let's say, tissue tropism. So do you engineer the mutations or do you do knockouts in toxoplasma strains to, to establish yeah. So we basically, um, we basically use the transcriptomic data as a as a basis, right, to start making hypotheses. And so, uh, definitely to cause to to prove that a gene is responsible for a particular phenotype, you have to knock it out, and you have to establish that when this gene is not present, the phenotype is is gone, right? But you have to complement it, so you have to bring the gene back. And that is um, uh, the molecular corpostulate that um, uh, it was at Stanford. Stan, Stanley Falco, um, I actually had the privilege to teach with him. He's, he was an amazing, amazing scientist. Um, he, he basically came up with, right? So yes, we can definitely make a mutation in toxoplasma. So we have, um, we can use the CRISPR-Cas9 um, gene editing system. We can use talons. Uh, we can use and we can use system to have inducible knockout. So for essential genes, um, um, you can sort of make the create a mutant where you can induce a gene to be on or off depending on what your question is. But yes, to establish causality, you need to go on remove the gene or manipulate the gene, lose a phenotype, but then always come back and complement that gene. To, to show that you can restore the, the phenotype. So that's that's one way to do it. Are these inducible, like with GAL4 UAS, those type of systems? Or? Yeah, so in Toxo, yeah, exactly. In Toxo, they have the, tet the tetracycline inducible system. Uh, we also can use the shield one. So like having a, adding a degradative domain so that when the protein is expressed, it has a DD, so a degradative domain. And then when you, you can add a compound to stabilize the protein, or you can add, you can remove the compound to then the protein will get degraded. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it, there's multiple ways of, of doing that because Toxo doesn't have the RNAi system. So okay, and then yeah, can we maybe talk more about genome regulation in both Toxo and uh, AP Complexa? So I think they have a different balance compared to, for example, eukaryotes in terms of regulating via transcription factors, chromatin remodeling, post-translational. Can you maybe tell us a bit more yeah. about that? I don't, I don't want to say they are different from other eukaryotes, right? Because they just happen to do it. Maybe the molecules are different, but the big themes, right? Uh, the big themes are the same, right? So Toxo can um, regulate genes transcriptionally, right, can do it post-transcriptionally, post-translationally. Some of the well-studied methods uh, include histone modification, and that's um, 
Bill Sullivan's uh, lab really does a lot of work on histone modification and toxoplasma with like HDAC and so on. Um, uh, there's also, they also use uh, transcription factor from the AP2 family of transcription factors. And these guys are actually quite cool because uh, depending on which AP2 uh, transcription factor you, um, you delete, the parasite can either go more toward the bradyzoite form or, or back, right? And uh, Sebastian Lurido's lab, they just um, recently actually identified what they call a master regulator of stage conversion. It's called uh, BFD1 where if you knock out this gene, the parasite would just produce cysts 100%. And it's the only gene that we know of that when you delete, there's no in-between, right? The parasite just uh, stage convert right away and produce a bunch of cysts. So transcriptional regulation using transcriptional factors, um, uh, uh, histone modification, but Toxo also uh, uses alternative splicing to regulate gene expression during its development. Um, so intron retention, the usage of um, um, uh, serine arginine rich proteins, also SR, SR proteins. Um, and they also use um, modification of the RNA. So pseudouridylation is one uh, mechanism of post-transcriptional um, post regulation that toxoplasma uses during stage conversion. So it's, it's really amazing because we know a lot about the tachyzoite to bradyzoite conversion, but a lot of these processes, how they play in the sexual stages is really largely unknown, right? And so you can tell this is what really excites me, what happens in the, in the sexual stages also, and also early, early on in infection in human. And, have an intermediate host. But do you, do you know what kind of signals are upstream of these genes? Like, what are they sensing to induce? Is it like pH, like reactive oxygen species? What kind of? So, so we know um, in vitro, right? For sure, we know that you have, you can induce tachyzoite to uh, convert to bradyzoite using uh, interferon gamma, using um, 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 nitrogen um, oxide. Right, so reactive oxygen species, the pH. So when we do um, one basic stage conversion assay in the lab is basically starving the, the parasite and increasing the pH. So you start them, you increase the pH and then they essentially get stressed out and then they move. So how they sense these signals, like what are the molecules that allow Toxo to integrate all this information are not we, we don't know, right? But we know that you expose them to these stressful uh, stimuli, they will convert. At least the tachyzoite will turn into the bradyzoite. And we know in vivo, if your immune system goes down, your immune system goes down, then the, the bradyzoite will reactivate and turn into tachyzoite, right? So stress causes tachyzoite to go to bradyzoite, Removal of stress causes bradyzoite to go back to tachyzoite. At least that's some of the paradigm that we know of as of now. And um, do, do they have uh, like um, the rapamycin, like the mTOR pathway? Toxo? Yeah. 
I would think so. Okay. Yeah, and I also uh, know that um, there's another one that um, the Ahimi Lab just discovered the more it's really really new it's more microchidia protein from toxoplasma represses parasite development and sexual uh, commitment so it it controls that switch as well so yes yeah, so this one is is associated with ap ap2 transcription factor and uh, histone modification one topic i'm very interested in is co-infections so either mm-hmm. parasites and parasites or parasites and pathogens from another kingdom like viruses and bacteria. So do you know if any, I mean, since toxoplasma has such a high prevalence, it's quite likely that it occurs in the, in the context of co-infections. Are any studied and are any maybe of clinical significance? From, from what I've seen, at least in, um, in, in animals, there's definitely co-infection of toxoplasma with other, uh, with other protozoan viruses and so on. The, the one that I just recently saw has to do with this, this organism called the Eligmosomoides polygyrus, okay. which is essentially a worm. Uh, and um, basically during co-infection with, this, with toxoplasma, what happens is Toxo will cause the immune system to go from a Th2 response, which is what is needed to clear the, the nematode, to a Th1 response, right? So there's, there is definitely um, some, I, 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 would, I would think that an infection with toxoplasma will definitely affect the immune response in a way that may affect other um, other other infection, but it's definitely co-infections. There's a lot of papers that come with co-infection of toxoplasma with toxocara in, in whatever cattles and things like that. In in humans, again, you know, if you have toxo, it's in your brain, you won't know, but you get other regular infections, right? So I mean it probably occurs in the context with malaria too, I suppose. No, yeah, I think so. I wouldn't, I wouldn't see why not. Um, I was wanted to ask you what, like currently in your research, do you find to be a bottleneck? Is, for example, accessing samples difficult or is it you're lacking a methodological tool or like computational power? Um, well, for me, it's essentially the type of institution I'm at, right? It's, it, I work mainly with undergraduates and master's students, so we don't, in terms of time commitment, right, it's, it's pretty limited. So we have to do, you know, very basic stuff, but we can still do, you know, genome-wide uh, transcriptional studies. Um, we can do most of the stuff we need. The, the main things are the tools, right, to study Toxo in the early stages, right? So we have a lot of tools for to work with tachyzoite, but can we develop tools to work directly with the sporozoite or the bradyzoite, right? Uh, in the early phases of infection. Is there a mass model that we can, or is there a, an animal model that we can use that is not mice, that is a bit more relevant for an oral infection with tissue cysts and so on. So I think for me, these are um, the limitation. The institution is small, right? And the, the power main power I have is pretty limited, but, um, but as for the field as a whole, I think 
I think the field has, we definitely have a lot of tools. And now that the Pandora box has been open for the sexual stage with the organoid and all that, I, I think there's a lot of questions that can be answered when it comes to Toxo now. That's great. And maybe which one is the upcoming development you're the most enthusiastic about or eager to see the results for? Oh, like I said, it's really is that the regulation of the, the, the sexual cycle of toxoplasma, like what is happening? Now we know what it is about the cat that makes it the sexual the definitive host, right? But how does that happen? What are the regulatory mechanisms that underline that switch, right? But also one of the things that I really, really am interested in is what happens when that bradyzoite or that sporozoite first gets out of that cyst wall, right? And say, hey, I'm free. Like what is happening in the gut? How does it, because clearly it can get through the mucus, right? It can get through the mucus and get to the intestinal epithelium, but it has to go through the microbiota, right? The parasite has to go through the microbiota, has to go through the mucus. Like, how does it do all of that? And to me, this is an area that is relevant. And because once you do it, maybe you can get probiotic, right? To prevent toxo infection. You can, you can also identify novel um, diagnostic markers because it's still not, now we know a little bit, you know, you got infected from toxo, it was a oocyst infection versus a meat infection, right? But it's not, it's not that clear, right? But by studying it more in the gut, you can, you can get a better idea of what is the major reservoir that we should actually pay attention to. Does that make sense? Okay, that does, yes. Um, and if people are interested in your research and they want to follow up, where do you where would you re redirect them? Um, they can visit my website uh, www.gitonlab.com, okay. and they can always also send me an email uh, at my work email address, which will be on the website. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Uh, it was really fun. Clearly, I still have a lot to learn myself. So. Thank you again.